Well, welcome this Veterans Day weekend. Uh, we're glad you're here to the Mill Church. If this is your first time, I'm glad uh, that today you decided to be with us. If you'd fill out a welcome card, we would love to have a, a record of your attendance. You can find those in the chair back in front of you. And whether you're visiting or have been here for some time now, I would just re remind you again to take advantage of the prayer needs section of that card. Our staff meets weekly. We would be delighted to pray for you if you have a request. We'd love to join with you in seeking God on your behalf. So fill that out, drop that in the offering plate. Uh, that would be helpful. Third week, week three in the book of, of Romans, uh, three of 52, roughly, the Apostle Paul is building an argument. It's going to take us a year to see that argument unfold. Uh, so profound was his ability to create and craft an argument. I've told you that the Harvard Law School in its first hundred years of existence used the book of Romans to teach their students how to advocate for a position. It was not a religious course of any kind. It was a law course. And that's because Paul will walk through in a linear way uh, a logic that's uh, really hard to disagree with. And so he will make some observations. He will present a solution to the observations he's made. He will, uh, in advance of any of us bringing up a critique, give us, uh, read our minds, and, and, and tell us what our critique is himself. And, and eventually, he'll even show us how our arguments against his argument actually strengthen his position. And it's really a, a lengthy book. I want to challenge you to be here and to not miss, to listen online if, if you do miss in person. And so here's a question that's going to guide us this morning in the next couple weeks. Why can only the gospel fix us? The gospel, if you're green to, to all this, is the good news that, that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, was sent from heaven. He died on an instrument of death like the shape of, of this year, a cross, a crucifix. He then rose again from death, only one to have ever done it unassisted, and victoriously sits at the right hand of the Father and is preparing a place for us to, to call home one day in heaven. That's the gospel. It's not bad news. It's good news. The victory has already been won. It's nothing we need to do to earn it. It's just a gift of God. It's, it's grace if we repent of our sins, if we accept the truth. And that's the gospel. And the, the apostle Paul argues for the gospel. Why, why only the gospel to fix broken humanity? I mean, why not just a little bit of religion? Won't that do? Why not some hard work, some elbow grease, some grit? Won't that fix humanity? What about a little biblical education? Won't that cut the cheese? Cut the cheese, that's not what I meant. I got too many little boys, okay? I just, occasionally I get the reference wrong. What about philanthropy? Why won't that do it? Why can't that get us to heaven? Why can't we little... Try a little harder. Why can't that fix humanity? Only the gospel will fix us, he says. Not only that, he advocates that the gospel is what brings all cultures, all colors, all races, all diversities of people groups together under one 
roof, one beautiful new humanity. And I told you last week, the abolition of racism is a big theme in the book of Romans. Can it be that the gospel can bring together a bunch of siloed Christians in different cultures into one group with one mission? Paul says there's a way. And before he can get us saved, which is, which is his goal in this book, he needs to get us lost in his logic. So today he's going to spend some time telling us that we're indeed lost so that we might admit that we're lost so that we might be found. We'll begin in verse 18 of chapter 1. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Now, those last three words are going to be our theme for the day. Suppress the truth. What does that phrase mean? Well, the word suppress means that we push something down. We push it down. It's not the same as ignorance. Ignorance is when you're unaware that there's a beach ball in the pool. Suppression is when you continue to try to keep the beach ball below the surface of the water. Does that make sense? That's suppression. So if the beach ball is truth, suppression of the truth is trying to keep it from its obvious natural state. On this note, Tim Keller says, a Presbyterian pastor from New York, when it comes to the knowledge of God, we all know, but sometimes we don't know because we don't want to know. We all know, but sometimes we don't know because we don't want to know. In World War II, the first town in which the Allies discovered a concentration camp uh, was the town, I believe it's pronounced Ordruf, Germany. The Germans tried to cover up the evidence They failed to cover up all of the evidence thoroughly. General Patton, who followed his troops into the town, vomited. Can you imagine the general of an army in World War II being so turned by what he saw that he would lose his stomach? This is what happened when he walked into the first concentration camp found. He didn't know it to be true. The mayor and the mayor's wife were found elsewhere, brought back into the town that they had governed. They claimed that they did not know what was going on. They were asked to give everybody who had been killed a proper burial. A few days later, after burying each individual body, uh, this is what happened. The town mayor and his wife hung themselves. They left a note and it said this, we didn't know, but we knew. We didn't know, but we knew. This is what Paul is saying happens with the knowledge of God. The truth is just too uncomfortable. So we suppress it. The truth requires us to change too much. 
So we suppress it. So subconsciously, people choose not to know. They suppress the truth. Verse 19. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they, he's talking to everybody here, are without excuse. The implication is that God made himself known to all people from all time periods across all of history in his creation. There's an argument used by many a philosopher called the cosmological argument, um, cosmology in the study of origins to be distinct from cosmetology, which is the study of the beauty of skin and face and nails and hair and, and, and things like that. Um, the cosmological argument, uh, Aristotle was the first to articulate this, and he said basically that something cannot come from nothing. It just cannot happen. And, and, and if there's something, where did this something come from? It doesn't matter whether or not there was a big bang. It's, it's kind of beside the point, really. Even if there were, where did the materials come from that produced the right ingredients for the big bang? So you can regress your way back so far in thinking about the origins of everything that is, but you cannot regress your way all the way back to nothingness. It's impossible. Eventually something has to come from somewhere. Nothingness just can't explode into everythingness. It just doesn't work. Richard Dawkins, in his book called God Delusion, a renowned atheist, he said this himself. He said, this is a huge problem for my worldview. He wrote, Darwin's theory works for biology, but it doesn't work for cosmology. Darwin's theory works for biology, the, the, the way that species evolve, but not cosmology, the ultimate, ultimate origin of things. So cosmology, he said, is waiting on its Darwin. In other words, atheists still have no idea where life comes from or where the material to produce life comes from. Dawkins said it. He said, nothing times nobody cannot equal everything. But then he says, but don't worry, one day we'll figure it out. That's the cosmological argument. The cosmetological argument, you can look up on Mary Kay's website. It'll be available to you there. Then there's the argument that uh, philosophers use called the teleological argument. Teleos is a Greek word that means purpose. So there's this unique purpose in creation. Teleological argument says um, not, not only is there purpose in creation, but creation is finely tuned. That's the, the two-word phrase that's used most frequently. Finely tuned for life. It's also been called the Goldilocks principle. Do you remember that story? 
it's not too hot, the earth. It's not too cold. The porridge is just right, okay? And so is the earth for suitable life. I'll give you a few examples that are commonly used to the teleological argument. A life-sustaining atmosphere has 71% nitrogen, 21% oxygen, 0.5% argon, and 0.03% carbon dioxide. A lethal atmosphere has 71% nitrogen, 21% oxygen, 0.5% argon. Notice those are the same as the life-sustaining atmospheres, but then this changes. Instead of 0.03% carbon dioxide, it's 0.08% carbon dioxide. The only difference between life-sustaining atmospheres and lethal atmospheres would be 0.03% carbon dioxide. Further, if oxygen dropped by 6%, we'd all suffocate. If it rose by 4%, the planet would erupt into a fireball, and we would all what? We'd die. Okay? We'd die. You guys need to get accustomed to using euphemisms. Burn! Explode! No, just let's just use die, okay? Let's keep it... Or this, the water molecule is the only molecule whose solid form, a form that I enjoy in, in every beverage, water, lemonade, ice, is less dense, actually, than its liquid form, the only molecule. This means that if ice did not float, it would sink to the bottom of the oceans and eventually freeze from the bottom up, which means, help me, we would all die. That's correct. If we were 2% closer to the sun all of the water on earth would evaporate. We would all die. If the earth was not tilted at 23.5 degrees, temperatures would be extreme. We would all die. Thank you, peanut gallery to my left. One more fun one. If Jupiter, if Jupiter wasn't the size that it is and placed where it is, there would be 10,000 times more asteroid strikes on the earth. And we would all not burn in an inferno, blah, 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 blah. We would all die. That's right. Francis Collins. Let's just say we put down our, our telescopes for a minute and pull out our microscopes. Let's go the other direction. Not bigger things, but smaller things. Francis Collins, head of the Human Genome Project, says, how could a cosmic accident ever result in the digital elegance of a DNA strand? To not believe there's a designer is like thinking an explosion in an ink factory could inadvertently produce the collected works of Shakespeare. Say, well, maybe we're just lucky. I think that Thought defies common sense. It's a kind of conclusion one would come to only if one were subjected to bias, predisposed to another worldview. It's along the lines of tossing a coin 
in the air every second and, and having it hit heads for the next 10 billion years in, in a row. So we can speculate that the galaxy was, was our placement in it was just really, really lucky. But positing that is what I'm trying to say is more of a mythological reach than is positing a creator God. It takes more faith. So the evidence is there for a creator, but yet people suppress the truth. It takes an anti-God mind to arrive at this conclusion. We know, and yet we don't know because we don't want to know. Paul is telling us that God has revealed himself in his creation. He's exactly right. A second way Paul says God has revealed himself is in us. This is a theme of the scriptures throughout, that we are the image bearers of God. So there are things that happen within us that are, are altogether outside of some accidental biology. I can tell you when I fell in love and I had butterflies in my stomach, that is not something that human biology can make or result in. I, I will tell you that, that the atheist philosopher Albert Camus said that we long for, quote, love without parting, but that a universe without God only gives us the conscious certainty of death without hope. He called this the absurdity of life. He said, uh, life is one long, tragic, epic, absurd comedy because we're in, in a futile way, continuing to spin our wheels and seek after things that life cannot provide. It sounds a lot like what King Solomon deduced as he thought of life under the sun and, and a man who had everything proclaimed that life is meaningless, purposeless, in vain. C.S. Lewis, he had a different observation, atheist turned Christian. He says, a baby feels hunger. Well, there's such a thing as food. A duckling wants to swim. Well, there's such a thing as water. Men feel sexual desire. Well, there's such a thing as sex. It's called the argument from desire. And it goes like this. If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation, C.S. Lewis said, is that we were made for another world. We were made for heaven. We were made for reality altogether outside of and in perpetuity, this reality that, 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 we, that we cling to and grasp with everything in us, though it's fleeting. Which one of these two systems do you prefer? That all of our longings for meaning and for justice and for value and life eternal are just one big unfortunate accident and joke? Or that our longings for justice and meaning and life eternal are because there is a place inside of us, or rather a place in the future in heaven that satisfies every desire we have inside of us. Does this make sense? In 2009, 
the uh, famed British journalist and biographer A.N. Wilson. He was an atheist. He became a Christian. This is what he said. In the Western world, we've been told that only stupid people believe in Christianity. But as a matter of fact, it's atheism that is dry, lifeless, creed, and totally irrational. Atheism says that we're just a collection of chemicals. It has no answer whatsoever to the question of how this animated sack of accidental chemicals could be capable of love or heroism or poetry. End quote. That's the argument from desire. What about the argument, and this is a big one, and this is the one Ravi Zacharias uh, talks about most, and William Lane Craig and other guys that I thoroughly enjoy watching on YouTube, YouTube from time to time, they, they give a moral argument. And they say that the very fact that we have moral desires, we have some sense of morality, suggests that there is a divine lawgiver upstairs, that there is a creator, God. Uh, as anybody, I think these style parking lots are, are more where I came from, but it, it used to be, I think we're moving away from this, you leave your ticket on the dash of your car now when you go to the airport. It used to be you would see signs like, don't forget to take your ticket with you. Don't forget to take your ticket with you. And then you see it painted on the, on the concrete of the garage. Don't forget to take your ticket with you. And you see it on the wall. Don't forget to take your ticket with you. And you see it hanging over, overhead. Don't forget to take your ticket with you. What was the sign saying? It was saying at some point before you exit this building, someone is going to ask you for a ticket. And you better have it. That's what the sign was saying. And, and you know, and, and I know, that in the human heart, there is a sense that somewhere, somebody is going to hold us accountable for our lives. Do you sense that? We sense some level of responsibility to be kind. We sense some level of responsibility to, to be others-centered. We have feelings of guilt. Where do those feelings come from? Feelings of obligation. These are, by the way, across all cultures. They're not present in, in any way in the animal kingdom. How many of you know of a, of a cat who, who sits around and remorses over the fact that he just toyed with a mouse? What about a great white shark like in Finding Nemo? Have you, have you ever known outside of Disney, like somebody's fantasy creation in their mind to entertain kids, a great white shark that went to a, a, an AA or a whatever club and, and said, I want to stay, I have a problem, fish are friends, not food? That's never to my knowledge happened. So this doesn't happen within the animal kingdom. It's because God placed in, in the heart of his image bearers, in human hearts, a sense of what is true and what is right and what is wrong. So what I'm saying to you is if you have a sense of what's wrong, doesn't that alone point to the fact that one day somebody is going to ask to see your ticket? We know this, but we don't know it because we don't want to know it. 
verse 21. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Why does it happen that humanity becomes futile in its thinking? Why does it happen that foolish hearts are darkened? It's because we didn't want to believe in God because we wanted to be God. We want to make the rules. We want the glory for ourselves. We want to live life so that we receive acclamation and praise and applause and attention. Darn it, we're self-made. Nobody ever gave me anything, we say. So we want to be the central character of the story of our lives. We know best, and, and our comfort, darn it, is our priority. Verse 22, claiming to be wise, they became what? Fools. I am not saying, please hear me. We, this is a marketplace. We have atheists and agnostics on a regular basis. They are welcome here. We hope you feel most at home. We love you. We want to see you come to faith in Jesus Christ. I'm not saying people aren't genuinely convinced they're atheists. I believe there are those. What I'm saying is that according to Romans 1, atheism is fueled by a subconscious desire not to know. It's a predisposed bias. There is a perpetual pushing down of the beach ball. Of course, it's fueled by culture. And inevitably, the beach ball is going to come to the circus, or rather the surface, the parking lot ticket will become due. We know, but we don't know because we don't want to know. That's why we don't know. This is why a lot of the great atheists and intellects have come to Christ, have become Christ followers. Over the last hundred years, even, T.S. Eliot, W.H. Alden, C.E.M. Jode, C.S. Lewis, A.N. Wilson. I didn't know all the smart people used initials. If you could refer to me as Z.A. Burris from this time forward, I'd appreciate that greatly. They all said, basically, what brought me to faith was not some new argument or evidence. I just admitted to myself that I always knew that there was a God in the deepest part of me, the beach ball kept coming up to the surface and eventually I let it. Verse 23. And exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man, birds, four-footed animals, and reptiles. Because they were foolish, they changed the object of worship from God to something that they could control. Something they could manipulate. To something that existed to serve them. They, they, they worshipped, I will say we, we worship, but the main question was how to get God to orbit 
around us as if we are the epicenter. So if I need a God to do this, I create that God. And if I need a God to do that, I create that God. And they're here to serve me. And they're my reason for being. And this can be a hobby. This can be a spouse. This can be a child. This can be a boyfriend or girlfriend. This can be even some, something you're devoted to. The most basic, I shouldn't say the most basic truth, a basic truth of Christianity, of creation, is that we were created for the glory of who? The glory of God. Not us. So the sun is at the center, not the earth. God is not our divine butler. God is not the genie in the lamp. We don't need to reimagine him because if God isn't God, we ought not think of creating our own or rather we will create our own. And so to, to, to a romantic part, I'll tell you in America, we have deified love. We've deified it. Love is, love is our new God. And so when God isn't the Lord of our lives, we elevate someone that we're attracted to to be the Lord of our lives. Consider the words of the modern-day theologian, Taylor Swift. I don't want to live forever because I know I'll be living in vain. Without you is implied. Without you, my sweetie, I'll be living in vain. I'm sorry, nobody but God should be elevated to that level of importance. Amen? Life is not vain because you're without someone. What about the scholar Justin Bieber? Baby, without you, I can't face life. How sad. that idolatry entered the heart of an individual to the point where they said, we can't live without this, this other. John Legend, you're my end and my beginning. That almost mocks the scriptures that say God is the alpha and omega. He's the beginning and, and the end. And if you're sitting there and you're saying to yourself, that's a problem with today's music, and you have this like generational snobbery thing happening, then I will tell you it was, it was no better in the music of your day because I grew up watching Karate Kid, and I love Chicago, and we sang to the top of our lungs, you're the reason in my life. Help me. You're the inspiration. Really? <laughs> really? Can, we, can the married couples just confirm to me that we are not one another's inspiration? Okay? We see each other in the real. No, let me explain. Let me explain. I said to Shan this week, honey, you got to embrace your weakness. You know what she did? She hugged me. I actually saw that on a Facebook meme. We didn't have that conversation. But that's funny. That's funny. 
We could play that song game all day with every genre from every generation. Do you see what Paul means when he says, you've exchanged the glory of the immortal for the image of the mortal? Human beings, religious or not, will worship someone or something. Verse 24, therefore God delivered them over in their desires, in their hearts to sexual impurity so that their bodies were degraded among themselves. Notice that the first wave of God's judgment, look at the words, he delivered them over. You know what that means? It means God is giving humanity exactly what humanity wants. That's his first wave of judgment. In other words, deliver us over means that God let us have our way. So for the rest of the passage, if you read it in the Greek, there's this, all this tit for tat. They exchanged the glory of God for images. Verse 23, so God exchanged them over to disgraceful passions. Verse 26, they dishonored God in verse 21. So God let them dishonor themselves in verse 24. They did not see fit to acknowledge God in verse 28. So God gave them up to an unfit mind. Sometimes God's wrath takes the form of giving us exactly what we ask for. Next week, we'll talk about skewed sexual passions in particular. Now that I mention that, we'll probably have 400 people in church. <laughs> well, I'll be there. We'll also talk about how whole societies, whole societies have suppressed the truth. We're going to be honest next week. We'll talk about racial discrimination. We're going to talk about licensed abortion. Where even when the wrong is obvious and everybody knows it, we come up with ways to ignore it to justify it, to institutionalize it. And we keep shoving that beach ball down in the pool. Here's what I want to say in conclusion. Um, I, need to, I need to turn this away from despair and, and to hope. Do you remember a theme verse in Romans? Romans 1, chapter 16 and 17, Paul says that in the gospel, God reveals his righteousness. In the gospel, in the story of a crucified Savior, God reveals his righteousness. And his righteousness is not talking about a standard that he judges by. It's talking about, we learn in week one, a gift of grace. What does that mean, pastor? Here's what that means. The gospel shows us that even though all of us have turned away from God to our own selfish, wicked, corrupt ways, God keeps coming after us. He keeps pursuing us. That is our God. He is faithful. He chases. Though we have rejected him, he poured out his judgment, not on us, but on his son, Jesus. He died in our place. He died for our sins. So the parking ticket, ultimately what I'm saying is if we repent, if we confess our sins to God, if we choose to acknowledge him and glorify him as Lord, it's not going to come due. 
His mercies are new every morning. We inherit heaven. So will you accept God's grace, friend? This is what Paul's message is. You're unrighteous, but God came after you anyway. Would you bow your heads? I'd like to just give everybody an opportunity today to become a Christian. And with all the eyes closed in the room, if there's anybody that would like to acknowledge Jesus as Lord of your life, would like to repent of your sins, would like to receive heaven, would like to receive a gift of grace, would like to start over a clean slate, pure white, with mercies that are new every day, I'd like to ask you just to look up at me and, and lock eyes so that I can acknowledge who you are and that you're in pursuit of Christ, that you want to become a Christian, that you want to give your life to Jesus. Anybody here today want to become a follower of God? He loves you. He's a father you've always wanted. You may not have had, but you've always wanted. That's God. Anybody at all? You can look back up at me. I trust that that means that everybody here is a Christian, that you love God. If you're not, I just want to say that uh, God loves you. And um, I have, I have uh, done my best to articulate that today, and I, and I hope that it's a seed that will produce fruit. And while it may not be today, I hope that one day you surrender your life to God. It's not, it's not his, his, his judgment that we're afraid of. It's his kindness that leads us to repentance. It's his great love for us in spite of how, how quickly we've ran away from him that urges us to change. And I'm going to pray that for you now uh, before we take our offering. Father, I just ask that you would urge, that you would compel everyone here to grow in Christ's likeness, to, to move away from self and to move toward you. Lord, I pray that we would repent of our sin. I pray, Lord, that we would confess you as Lord. I pray that we would desire to live righteously because you have been so kind and so patient toward us, your creation. You say you know the hairs numbered on our head. You knew us before we were in our mother's womb. Our life has value and meaning and purpose. We're your image bearers. God, I pray people here would know that, everybody. continue to provide for our church family. In Jesus' name, amen.